When you said director, you meant film director. I thought you meant director as in conductor. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I mean, like, a, a real artist. We're finally doing the homework, which I don't think we've ever done before on, on <laughs> ITL. We are not model students here. <laughs> no, never have been, never will be. But before we launch into the jazz loft, I just had a, a quick question for you. Yeah. I'm getting my repertoire lined up for recitals this, this season. And I wonder what you think is the importance of diversity in programming. And I don't mean diversity in the, um, in the sort of, you know, woke buzzword sense. I mean, actually, you know, um, <laughs> in, in, the, in the type of music that you play, you know, like so, modern, classical, big, small. So, Sridhar, excellent question. <laughs> you come to the right place. <laughs> You've asked the right guy. So do you remember my senior recital at Indiana? Was that the one that I played in or no? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the program notes that you wrote for it, like the night before? Which, by the way, was like the ultimate like wingman move. I'm stressing out about the recital and stuff and making sure everything's in order. And you did the clutch move of writing program notes for my recital. And I think the first sentence you said, the theme for this recital is diversity. Did I say that? That's interesting. It was only in retrospect that you and then eventually I realized this, but it was a pretty diverse program, right? Because I was playing the Gershwin Three Preludes arranged for trumpet and piano, which was really cool. Then it was the Entrada by Odo Ketting. Then it was the Arutunian Trumpet Concerto. And so the Entrada was just for solo trumpet. The Arutunian Trumpet Concerto was for trumpet and piano accompaniment. And then we played Masks by Feltziano, which was for flute and trumpet. It was um, very varied music, ethnically, right? Like culturally, we had Soviet music, we had American, <laughs> we had um, Odo Ketting, where is he from? Sounds German. Yeah, so it was very diverse just, you know, from the music standpoint, but also like the tonal and atonal standpoint. Like some of the pieces were very atonal, some were very tonal, some were tonal on the edge of atonal, and, some, and then the entrada was very atonal, but on the verge of tonality, like it wanted to become tonal, as I think you pointed out in the note, so hmm. it was very diverse from that standpoint. And then from the instrumentation, obviously, piano, flute, trumpet, three different instruments, but then you also say the, the performers, I'm an Italian, Russian, Jewish, American, you were, you're Indian, and you at that point had not gotten your American citizenship yet, so... <laughs> Yeah. You were a, a dreamer. <laughs> and, and then Hei Wung, our pianist, she was Canadian-born Korean, right? And so it, from like the personnel perspective, too, it was also very, very diverse. So I totally forgot about that, but that, that was a crazy mix of, of a lot of things. The word I would use today if I had to redo it was, was maybe eclectic. Oh, nice. But only because of, it seems like the word diversity has been kind of hijacked recently. Yeah, you know? yeah. The way I look at it, I think you should go to either one extreme or the other. Have like a very themed recital, only music by Purcell or something, <laughs> right? And just like really have it as like a, a deep dive. And that's where you actually get to something interesting. Or do the total opposite. Have music like by Ebert and by Bach and an original composition and something Czech, right? So yeah. like just go like all over the map or like extremely focused. To, to really get at something original and unique and meaningful, yeah, you have to go one way or the other 100%. Another thing I would recommend is to be just totally cheeky with it. 
I'm a huge fan of finding arbitrary themes or arbitrary relations between pieces. So like only pieces that have the number 13 in the title, <laughs> like piano sonata 13, yes. um, you know, minuet 13, you know, partita 13. Yeah. Some, something like that. <laughs> now this is an idea that I'm immediately charmed by. That, yeah. that might be the direction that I go in. <laughs> the Castro theater in San Francisco, which is a great old school classic movie theater that plays classic films all the time and stuff they they have a lot of fun with themes they played it was like a triple feature of the movie san andreas with the rock you know dwayne johnson <laughs> so it was, so it was that then after that was the movie the rock with sean connery and nicholas cage and then the third film was rocky <laughs> <laughs> oh man i love that yeah so I wholeheartedly endorse ignoring my previous answer and just going that route. Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to introduce our, our topic for the day? Yes, I would love to introduce the topic. I watched it, I rewatched it before this before this recording, but I watched it like two weeks ago and I know you watched it like 12 hours ago. Yeah, (laughs) just about, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll give it a shot. Yeah, so the movie is The Jazz Loft, according to Eugene Smith. And this was a documentary that came out, I think in like 2016 or something, within like the past five years, I want to say. And it, it, it was produced largely by WNYC, great public radio station and organization in New York. You know, they're the ones that gave birth, like Freakonomics and a lot of the great stuff that you probably Hmm. enjoy. So yeah, anyway, this documentary, The Jazz Loft, I was one of those very serendipitous documentaries I stumbled across, which is the best way to find documentaries, just by stumbling across them, I think. And what it's about is it's basically about the life of, of Eugene Smith, who was one of the legendary black and white photographers of the 20th century. He was... He was a um, photographer for Time Magazine. Like the standard population would recognize some of his like really iconic photos of World War II and of, um, of Pittsburgh. He, he did a really interesting residency as like the official photographer of Pittsburgh. I don't know what you call it, but but for Time Magazine, some like gorgeous. I mean, like if you don't appreciate photography as an art, you will after you after you look at some of his pictures. It's just really something. And basically, he lived in and was um, the tenant for this loft in Manhattan that later became known as the Jazz Loft because it was basically an open open space where anyone could come in and jam. And it soon became like a mecca for where jazz in the late 50s and early 60s was sort of developing. Some of the big names in jazz, I, I'm not sure if it was mentioned in the documentary, but I do know for a fact that Bill Evans hung out there a lot. Hmm. You know, we've talked about him on the show legendary jazz pianist who was classically trained which i always think is and not just classically trained like an actual classical pianist that went the jazz route and stuff which i always thought was very apparent in his playing and just super interesting but yeah anyway it was this it was a spot where um jam sessions would happen every day of the week to like four in the morning a lot of the big names in jazz hung, hung out there bernstein would hang out there from time to time it became known as like this underground i mean it was a loft above the apartment but it was an <laughs> underground s- sort of place the thing, though, is that Eugene Smith, being such the great photographer he was and the great documenter he was, he took countless photos of everything happening there, everyone that came and stuff. And 
And he also rigged up the apartment with microphones and recording equipment. So when the jam sessions were happening, he would turn it on. And it's this almost, it's a very cool, like documented case of like the jam session, you know, which I, I don't think we get enough of. Like I always love um, any of the B-rolls you can hear fine of like the Beatles recording sessions when they're making Sgt. Pepper. And some of those are even on, um, on the anthology series, some like the alternate takes and them chatting about it. So I always think those behind the scenes recording session reels are so fascinating. And that's what this documentary is about. It's about this cool iconic loft, everything that happened there. And also the life of Eugene Smith, who was, you know, we can get to this maybe eventually, but I always thought there's a very interesting time between jazz and classical music and photography. When you think, even just music in general, when you think of like your favorite bands or your favorite artists like Freddie Mercury, you think of the iconic photo of Freddie Mercury at Wembley Stadium, right? Hmm. How photographers have documented the happenings of music, I think is such an interesting, interesting space. And like the iconic photos of Miles Davis or that one of Leonard Bernstein lighting that cigarette with his shirt off like backstage and, yeah. <laughs> and things. So I thought that was a really cool thing to explore and tie in as well that, that the documentary addressed. So that's basically my my take to try to just recap it r- real quick. What are your thoughts, Jeter? I So, yeah, I watched this. Yeah, probably, it's probably been about 12, 13 hours since I finished it. <laughs> it was a late night. And I, I absolutely loved it. And the first thing that, that I'll add to that is is that the documentary just looks so good, largely because it's made up almost entirely of, of pictures by Eugene Smith. When it's not showing people who are being interviewed, it's basically showing pictures by Eugene Smith. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, it just on that front, the documentary just it, it just gets upgraded to a level that most documentaries don't get upgraded to, right? Because it, right, right. it looks damn good the whole way through. And yeah, it was actually more about Eugene Smith than I had anticipated. I thought it was going to be okay. mostly about the, the jazz loft. And it, it was, yeah, it yeah. really was a, a lot about it. But I, I didn't expect to learn so much about Eugene Smith in the process. And that also was really a pleasant surprise because he just was such an interesting character, almost a tragic character. Yeah. Right? yeah. Or not almost. He, he was a tragic character. I, I have a bunch of notes here. Let me let me just sort of. Yeah, I, always, I don't. So great. <laughs> yeah, I, I always take I always take notes. You know, the documentary is good because I started off taking a lot of notes and then I eventually stopped because I just was enjoying myself. That's so true. Yep. Yeah. I, I loved this the the sense that there, there was a line early on that Eugene Smith called called that window from from the loft his, his proscenium arch, and I, I totally mm. love that that he just was this almost reclusive character who's who's hanging out and taking all these pictures from from the from the window you know of this of the street, and then the mm-hmm. happenings of, of this uh, of the flower district where where they were, and then you know eventually it it seemed like. He, he moved from taking pictures of the street to taking pictures inside the loft, you know. And, and I, I love this this sense of, of he almost made a self-portrait without actually making a self-portrait by huh. by, um, by by documenting his life so ther- so thoroughly. Um, because it's, it sounded like he actually didn't even, he didn't just rig the recording to, to happen when the jam sessions were, but he just rigged the recordings to go on just during his daily life. Like I remember there, there were a couple scenes where the phone was just going off and there was like a voice message or whatever. There was like a message left for him or something like that. And, or like there's someone coming to talk about some random bureaucratic thing or the landlord or something like that. And, and the, the tape is just running this whole time. So, so I found this, yeah. this absolutely fascinating, this obsession with, with just documenting 
life, right? And it yeah. so happens that both Eugene Smith was obsessive with, with the way that he took photographs, and also the the musicians who would show up at the jazz loft were were obsessive with with making music, right? They they were these people are their their work was their life. So it so mm-hmm. happens that this documentation of life also happens to be a, a, a documentation of their work. But that seems almost a happy accident, right? The picture that he took when he stood up or something like that. Do you yeah. remember that? <laughs> um, yeah, and he, he got injured he very got badly, right? Pretty he, badly, yeah. It's so it, it sounds like there was some attack and the, the leader of the troop or whatever, I don't know military terminology, yeah. told everyone <laughs> to, to, to like take cover. And Eugene yeah. Smith, being the kind of person that he is, when, when he heard that, he thought there might be a good photograph here. So when everyone <laughs> else was taking cover, he stood up. And this picture, it's, it's, it's a crazy picture, right? It's yeah. uh, because you have to, you know, the thing about taking a photograph is that you actually have to be there when the thing yeah. is happening. And, and he yeah, got that's really, what it's like. It's like out of focus. You yeah. can't, can't even tell what it is. It's like blurry and, and yeah. fragmented. Exactly. And you're like, yeah, this is the moment he like got shot like in the arm and, and in the torso and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, and then it really it messed up his face. Like it, it sounds like he yeah. didn't have like the roof of his mouth was non-existent or something. One of my favorite quotes about photography is from Ansel Adams, who was good friends with Eugene Smith. And he said, there are, there are always two people in every picture, the photographer and the viewer. Hmm. And because what Eugene Smith was, which made him kind of like perfect unintentionally for this jazz loft thing, was that he was just like a trained documenter, which I always thought in a similar vein was the beauty and genius of Ernest Hemingway, right? He was, was a war journalist. That was how he learned to write, right? In World War One, mm-hmm. when he was in Italy and things. So he learned how to like document stuff like correctly efficiently and in a way that's interesting right and the same way Eugene Smith learned how, how to do that just via photography and not writing like Hemingway yeah. did but how that influenced Hemingway's style and you know which produces wonderful short stories and of course his novels and things I think that's also true with Eugene Smith how he was just such a he was just trained whether he knew it or not just to be like a really brilliant documenter of things you know, that made him perfect for him running the jazz loft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- I think that the term they were using, I had never heard this term before, but they were calling him a photojournalist. Yeah. Which was I, very interesting. I heard that too, and I guess, I, I guess I'd never heard that term as well. And maybe because it's a lost art. You know, this was before TV, right? So, so, yeah, so yeah. the way that you would tell the stories visually was, was through photographs. So that's what, that's what he did, you know. The way you saw anything back then was in Newsweek magazine, hmm. in Time, right? Right. Um, newspapers to some degree, but newspapers, of course, for better and worse, probably better, you know, had a heavier focus on the written content and stuff. The reason you bought Time was for the visual part of it, yeah. So. Yeah, and and to just riff on that for a minute, the sort of documenting of it. Another part that I, that really stuck out to me was when they were describing his like the, his process of developing the photos. Yeah. So I, that was that was so cool and interesting, and it sounds like most people, you know, they would just take the photo and then they would send it off to someone else to to develop it, and and then they would put it in the magazine and determine the size and all that stuff. But he had this dark room where he would obsessively develop these photographs exactly the way that he wanted, and the process was the process was using some chemical. I think it was called like ferrocyanide or something. Yeah, it was, um, it was some poisonous, beautiful. Yeah, it was like a chemical was like that a should not be breathing. Agent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's probably FDA just like banned it by now. <laughs> yeah, and he would 
basically color parts of the photos with this with this ferrocyanide. I forget exactly how the process worked, but to alter the photo slightly. Um, yeah, and yeah. and you know the the two examples I think they gave they were from the I think the series of photographs that he did on the on the Spanish village. In one photograph, the glint in the villagers' eyes is is exaggerated more than it would in in real life because right. know, it's not it's not possible. So so the photograph captures there's you know, a sort of glint in their eyes more than actually happened in in the, in the real world. And another one where I think there's a nurse. And she's she's working with the patient, and and the light there's a light in the background, but he uses the ferrous cyanide to make the light exaggerated and almost creating a sort of halo effect around the nurse, which is not the light of the the lamp, but it's the light right. of Eugene Smith in the dark room using ferrous cyanide. Right. So you know the, this goes yeah. to we talked before about Herzog's sort of ecstatic truth, you know, yeah. and and sort of fudging things ever so slightly just to to sort of give the because the nurse is. You know, she is an angel in that in that yeah. in that photograph, right? And the light didn't quite capture that, so he he developed it in such a way as to actually capture that. So it, it's more true than true, right? There's a similar thing with this with this jazz loft documentary, uh, not the documentary, the, his documentation of the jazz loft. Right. It's not purely fly on the wall. There's something there about the the effect of the of the person documenting on the subject, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's also um. There's that interesting parallel with what we talked about last time or the time before with your recording of your album, how you spliced together several takes, then you create something that's even more magical and more beautiful than anything you actually played, anything that ever actually existed. And you're creating something better than that, right? And the photography is the same way, right? It's like documenting, you know, it's not just documenting just to retell it. No, it's to actually create something, to convey something, to convey an idea, a meaning, that. and Exactly. And the idea of even taking a picture in the first place is already artificial, right? <laughs> Cause, right. Because you're not there, but this is a way to make you understand what it was like to be there or something along those lines. The art of photography isn't just finding the picture, which, of course, there is an art to that, framing and finding the picture. There's a huge art to that. But the other side of the coin is creating the picture. Yeah, and, and I think great photographers understand understand that almost intuitively they must yeah right that the photograph is not merely a document but it is it has to be a story yeah what um what did he say what was like there's that quote they put up on the screen at one point it, it was like the key to developing a great film or oh, i actually to- wrote it down because <laughs> yeah. i love I, I wrote it down because i loved it so much and uh, i thought of you right when i saw that i'm like all right <laughs> i need to recommend this to Shreda. there it is <laughs> <laughs> the quote is my formula for successful printing remains ordinary chemicals and ordinary and larger music, a bottle of scotch, and stubbornness. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, oh, isn't that great? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's super super bare bones, nothing fancy, but just sticking it out and and the sort of the the sense that he had that that it was absolutely necessary to take photographs, right? And, mm-hmm, and right. or even just to to listen to music, to talk about music, and to yeah. to have th- there was a scene la- later on where um, the Cuban Missile Crisis is happening, right, right, and and someone comes down to to Eugene Smith's apartment, and you know they're kind of wondering what what is going to happen, like are they going to be toast in yeah. in five minutes, and and what they end up doing is they they put on a record, and uh, I think it's of Miles Davis's Spain. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, Eugene Smith is just sort of bantering about how this is all a ripoff of Rodrigo, and <laughs> yeah. and I loved it so much. It reminded me of of uh, when when Martin Luther w- was asked what he would do if he knew that the world was ending tomorrow. He said that he would plant a tree, 
And I mm. think that there's something beautiful to that, right? Like even if you think the world is ending tomorrow, you have to just keep doing, keep doing the thing that that is that makes life worthwhile in the first place. And and you got the sense that if Martin yeah. Luther was going to plant a tree, Eugene Smith was going to take a photograph. Yeah, uh, right. Or at right. least, or listen to a record, or or, or talk yeah. about music in some way. You know, he, he just—it was absolutely vital for him. Yeah. Oh, that's so. Yeah, I. <laughs> I don't want to get too off topic, but <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> yeah, long ago, long ago. Um, I can also just draw a comparison and um, think of the great American painter Edward Hopper, hmm. who painted probably the most famous American painting of all time, Nighthawks. The one in like the diner with the three people and the worker and stuff. Yeah, it's not and even a competition. Yeah, that that's just and also if you're ever at the Art Institute of Chicago, which I do think is the greatest art museum on this continent. It is yeah. the CIA. So, the Chicago, oh, yeah, yeah, the Chicago Institute of Art. Of art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, it's close. Either that or the National Gallery in oh, DC okay. is also very good. Sorry, Matt. You <laughs> can have your galas and all that nonsense. You know, you want to do and pay for your multi-million dollar renovations <laughs> and that that you know have oh, okay, tax yeah, the I, rich. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Met has a really great gift shop. I, I will give the Met that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's actually like the main attraction. Like, oh, the museum. Yeah, <laughs> but spend money. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, the, the Art Institute of Chicago is just phenomenal. Like that's just a brilliant, brilliant museum, and um, that's where Nighthawks actually is. The the original actual painting, and it's it's huge too. Or not? I mean, I don't know. Not huge, huge, but it's bigger than you think it is. It's like the anti Mona Lisa. It's actually like <laughs> a huge thing that you cannot carry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I love um, how Edward Hopper, all of his paintings all kind of have a common thread, which I think is beautiful. And his theme is always like loneliness and isolation. The other painting I, I love of his, is called like um, movie theater or something. It's with the woman standing by herself mm. at the side, on the side of the inside of a movie theater. And it's, uh, yeah, there's something I just love about that painting. But anyway, I just love how Edward Hopper, when he was painting Nighthawks, the East Coast was very paranoid. I mean, America was a little paranoid with World War II raging in in Europe. Um, And the Nazis, you know, having vocalized very clear plans to move move their operation to North America. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure paranoid is the right word there. I think concerned, like rightfully concerned is... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we might want to do something about this. Uh, but anyway, so like the East Coast, especially in New York, ran blackout drills all the time where they would mask the city in darkness if there's ever a, a, a night air raid, you know, with Nazi bombers. So they like practice how to like have like hospitals work in like almost no light. They would practice masking New York in total darkness. So Nazi bombers hopefully couldn't find it. But Edward Hopper just didn't care. He just left his light on and painted all night, every night. And of course, where Edward Hopper lived in Greenwich Village, just, you know, a handful of blocks away from where the jazz loft was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though Nighthawks was painted maybe 15 years earlier, yeah, they're, they're still in the same hood. And I kind of wonder if, like, you know, the bohemian artist nature of New York in those days was, uh, it must have been so cool. Again, that's always the... There's a name for that effect, right? You always think the generation before you was cooler. You always think it was better back in the 20s. And they <laughs> thought it was better back in the 1880s in the Victorian era, right? Yeah. So I do know that's like um, a there's like nostalgic syndrome or something. But yeah, I just think, you know, with Bernstein running the New York Phil and like balancing starting to like 
get things going with the New York City Ballet and stuff and like transforming that whole art form, right? And Jerry Robbins was there as well. You know, the artist colony that Greenwich Village was in lower and midtown Manhattan was, I just think was was such a magical time. And it's, of course, where, yeah, jazz was becoming, jazz had already become jazz and was continuing to just constantly develop and become something new and something bigger than itself. Yeah, it was absolutely a scene in a way that I don't think New York is now. I mean, New York is a hub still. It, it's still a central yeah. node in, in, in the network. Um, and it's still one of the most important places on, on the planet culturally. But it's not right. the same scene that it was in the 60s, I, I don't think. I don't get the sense that, that New York is, is, is bubbling over with something new right now. Just gift shops. <laughs> yeah. Um, lots of gift shops. <laughs> lots of gift shops. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure, which is not to say that nowhere is. There's almost certainly yeah. a scene happening somewhere, and I don't know where it is. Yeah. It's something that usually you find out after the fact, right? Yeah, right. So that's it, hard to, to know. I mean, I think one of the crucial elements of this was that none of the people who were there involved in the jazz loft were aware that this was a scene while it was happening. They were not self-conscious about it. Um, I think that's so key. That's yeah. so key. Because I'm sure, I'm just going to venture a guess, but I think, yeah, if you would have asked any of them, like, where the art capital of the world, like, where the great artistic innovations were happening in the world, they would have said, like, Paris or something. Yeah. Which would not really have been true, right? Yeah. And, of course, in the 1920s in Paris, if you asked where the art, the art innovations of the world were happening, which it was happening in Paris in the 20s, but they would have said... Vienna yeah right? <laughs> right so I think there is that like time delay and there's a bit of a hangover effect yeah yeah like and if you ask people right now where they exactly. think it's going to be it's, they, they would say New York but it's not it's somewhere else and I don't, yeah. know, I don't know where yeah yeah I, I wouldn't we've talked about this offline a handful of times and New York's fa fantastic city like a music capital in so many ways a cultural artistic capital but as far as the innovations of art I mean just like again the Met Gala. <laughs> Everything yeah. you need to know about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I always joke, like, the two biggest industries in New York, and I'm pretty sure this is factual. Check me, people, if you think I'm wrong, but there are finance and tourism. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I wonder where the real art scene is right now. But again, you, I don't think you could possibly know that. Like, there is only apparent afterwards. So, yeah. you know. Um, so I, I was going, to, I was going yeah. to bring this up later, but it's kind of related to this, so I'll bring it up now. I thought one of the things that the movie did really well, and I was really prepared for it not to, is, oh, okay. is that it didn't romanticize that era. Like you said, you know, there's, uh, there's yeah. this effect where you can sort of dip into a nostalgia thinking that everything was cooler back then, and this documentary would, be, would have been ripe for that, right? Because yeah. this is it's a pretty cool thing that happened, and, and yet the yeah. movie did a really good job of making at least to me, two things very clear, which is that one, this was a place of great beauty, but also a place of great tragedy. Yeah. The people who were going through here were mostly broke. They had no money. They had no credit. They had barely any food. A lot of them had... <laughs> I mean, Eugene Smith was one of them. <laughs> Eugene Smith was one of them, yeah. He was always yeah. having problems with the, the, the landlord and with, with money, like his family he had to leave his house because uh, you know because of, of yeah of his marriage was, his, was yeah yeah and he had problems with his kids and then he you know he, there was a scene where he kept calling up his kid after his kid had a family of his of his own saying that he would um threaten to kill himself if he didn't come to see him or something like that and, and the son was like right. i can't come see you now because i have my own family i can't ruin 
my family because because of you you know that and then you know he would he would place these expensive uh he would like send these expensive telegrams to to these late night radio shows and, and ask him to read it out just so that just so i don't know i, I don't know why but it just seemed like yeah. he was tremendously lonely and his life was was broken and the only thing that he had was um these photographs and then the, the actual the loft like the jazz and you know th- there was a, a drummer who, who had gone through there i think his name was ron free and yeah. um he had a tragic story of of getting hooked on on smack and sort of burning out in his mid-20s hall overton is another one yeah he, he was yeah. there he, was, he, he played a big role in, in it and we can talk more about him later but you know he died of um of cirrhosis quite young yeah Jeez, um, yeah it was a messed up time, and and I, I got the sense that Eugene Smith was just born too early. You know, it's the same tragic sense that I get when I look at Glenn Gould. Mm. It's that I just wish that these people were born into the internet, because yeah. these these are people who need the kind of media that we have now. You know, you look yeah. at these the pictures of his apartment, and he's just there was a line in the documentary about how he was just weighted down by all his things. You know, he had thousands of, of books, tens of thousands of records and, and, you know, millions of photographs. His whole existence was just weighted down by this thing. And he was like this reclusive, isolated figure who needed connection, but, but he didn't. <laughs> Instagram. Really, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he couldn't, yeah, he couldn't like quite, connect and, and and i think like the same thing happened with with gould you know and i think the internet yeah. the internet would have solved a lot of things in terms of um you know being able to first of all i mean can we just take a moment to like thank our our, our blessings for digital content i mean yeah. jesus christ man <laughs> Jeez, I, I, <laughs> yeah no it's funny i mean dude like so i'm starting to feel old i think we both are when like gen z is coming up and like they've never not had Netflix (laughs) 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 or streaming or or, or YouTube. Right. So yeah, Yeah. I just, it's easy to, and we talked about this every time we've like critiqued streaming, right. We always, we always do catch ourselves, I think. And we always say like, well, let's at least be thankful we have it. Cause it's 10 years ago. You always had to like burn a CD for a friend or something. It would be hard. Now I I can name any classical recording. I can, I can get it, you know, in a, in a few clicks on my Apple music app. So, yeah. And this, this sort of, you know, looking at his, his apartment, it sort of moved it from the realm of, you know, what would have been in, inconvenience to a real tragedy. Like I think he actually was weighted down by, by yeah. all the photographs that he took in a way that he he probably would not have been if he could if he could do it digitally right um, right so there there's that and you know it's I'm not sure if this is actually true but it sounds nice I think how we're doing something is often much more important than than what we're actually doing sure so yeah. you know wars will yeah. happen politics changes but the undercurrent through all this is that you know the, the i would say the most important thing that's happening is that i'm actually watching this uh, you know on on youtube yeah you know yeah in in my home with a laptop that was that was uh not in the scheme of things that expensive it's, you know the the, the right. availability of information and the ease of it and the the accessibility of it to more and more people mm-hmm. um for for cheaper and cheaper it, that is the real story of the arc of of, of progress right no, yeah, right. I mean, the great advancements in technology, you know, aren't the new fancy thing, right? No, it's last decade stuff getting cheaper and more accessible, right? Yeah. That's how, you know, that's how technology actually changes society, right? Right. 
Like I, I just love that picture. There's that one of like everyone taking a picture at Grand Central Station in 2006. Um, and yeah, everyone has like you know the little Canon cameras or your Nikon cameras or something, or your 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 Razer flip phone <laughs> trying to take a picture, right? It's like a big crowd of everyone doing that. And then they did it again ten years later, and it's just you know a sea of iPhones. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No. And um, I always joke too. I think the '60s were like my decade. Like I, I wish I could have been around in in the '60s because I thought you know the great films of the '60s, the great you know Sinatra, the Beatles, Bossa Nova, the fashion. You know, like look at anything like JFK wore. I mean, it's still stylish today, right? Look at anything Carter or Reagan or Bush wore. It looks hideous by today's standard. You know? Yeah. <laughs> right. But like the fashion of like the sixties lasted in like a really cool way, I, I think. But then again, like go back to the sixties, talk to anyone who lived through it, especially in New York, right? New York was more corrupt than it had ever been, right? Crime was terrible. It was a dirty city. You know, the EPA hadn't been established, right? It was, it was not a clean place to live. There was, you know, the missile crisis, as you said, you know, international turmoil. The civil rights movement was happening and the civil rights movement was iconic and great. After the fact, it was like very painful when it was actually going on. It was not an easy time, right? But again, right, you always kind of romanticize it. Yeah. Um, looking backwards. So yeah, I I totally agree. I got that sense too. This documentary was, in the way Eugene Smith would have liked it, it was very raw. Yeah. Right? yeah. It was very unfiltered and just and kind of just showed what it was like to like spend your life in this crummy loft apartment that I'm sure would violate any building code. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. <laughs> like that was not safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If there was a fire, the, you know, that would have been the end of him. Forget nukes from Cuba. Just, you know, <laughs> just some idiot with smoking downstairs, which I'm sure there were. Yeah. They, it seems like they were doing a lot of stuff. Um, there was a hilarious scene where someone was describing what they were, what, what they were drinking. And, uh, yeah, right. and, and this guy, this guy, he, I, I don't know if, I don't know if he meant it as a joke, but it was hilarious. He was like, we had this thing. It was, uh, it was called old Philadelphia and I'm not sure what it was, but you could do two things with it. You could drink it or you could thin paint with it. I'm going to be like, you, you, that's paint thinner. You know exactly what that is. <laughs> You're drinking paint thinner, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, do you have any particularly favorite photographs you remember from it because i i think you you really touched on something great which is like visually this is just one of the greatest things i've seen in a while which again partly i guess is credit to the documentary makers they made the choice to include all these great photographs by eugene smith of, of the of the loft and the environment and the people there and um Thelonious Monk like jamming on the piano and like and doing like um rehearsals for the piece he was premiering at Carnegie Hall all the rehearsals were all done at the Jazz Loft I mean it's like yeah so cool so cool but yeah I'm just curious are there any particular photographs you remember that stand out to you any favorites oh man that's that's a really tough question mainly because I mean probably hundreds of photos would have would have flashed by the screen right I could go first because I yeah. watched it like a few weeks ago. So I think the ones that I still remember are the ones that obviously yeah. stuck with me. Yeah. So I love the picture of Salvador Dali hanging out in the jazz loft. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like smoking a cigarette or something like he's like, yeah. Yeah. Like achievement unlocked. If like Salvador Dali's hanging out at your place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In general, there, there was some interesting non-musicians there. I, like yeah. I saw also that Norman Mailer was there. The, yeah. The, yeah. The writer. So. Right. Yeah. 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 So I love that one. I love the. <laughs> you just know you're going to like a cool place or a cool party if the sign at the entrance, the ground floor level says, "If you must knock, knock loudly." 
Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that picture was really funny. <laughs> there, there was another picture of a sign. I don't know where this, I don't know if this was in his house that he had to leave or if this was in the, in the loft itself, but there was a sign that said, or maybe it was to the entrance to his dark room. But he, he wrote a sign that said something like, please do not disturb me unless it's the second coming of Christ. And even if so, please check to make sure that's true. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> nice, nice. I also liked, um, so when he lived in Pittsburgh for a year on, on assignment, I, yeah, I love so many of those pictures. The one that just I love for some reason, I don't know why, it was just um, the one with all the railroad tracks, mm. the big railroad track intersection, I guess. That like, one was um, really cool. Yeah, just because trains are awesome and cool, uh, but also just I don't know why I thought that picture was just like so mesmerizing. I'm a sucker for yeah. for a good geometric photograph yeah, or painting. So. You know, that's just that just hits me in all the right spot. I mean, like the album cover for the quarantine tapes. When I saw when yeah, I saw that yeah. picture that Libby took, I was like, to- I was so sold on it from the get go. Yeah, because like the electrical wires or whatever you call them, the the, ele- the electric lines, the row yeah. of houses. I just yeah, was like, this just lines, is, yeah. yeah, the power lines. For some reason, my brain just is like, yes, I, I, this needs to be, this needs to be it. Yeah, no, that's so cool. Um, some other ones that stick out, again, because of, because I just watched this so recently, there's so many photographs just flicking through my mind that I'm like having a hard time picking picking some out. But the ones that we mentioned about the, the Spanish village were really, yeah. were really moving. And there was one of a soldier. He has a cigarette dangling in his mouth and he's sort of turning around. It's, yeah. it's it's almost like a portrait of him and that that one was was also that's a pretty good one that's yeah. yeah one of the things is that that really interested me about this loft i'm not sure if we cut it from a previous episode but you were talking about that that quote by someone about how the the, the most beautiful things are like functional right like a, like a bridge yeah. or something yeah that's from the opening line of that ken burns documentary on the brooklyn bridge mm. yeah yeah uh, that quote you're referencing is by Montgomery Scheuler, and it is this. It so happens that the work, which is likely to be our most durable monument and to convey some knowledge of us to the most remote posterity, is a work of bare utility. Not a shrine, not a fortress, not a palace, but a bridge. Boom. I love, I love that. I actually read it not badly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That was a good read, man. That was a good yeah, read. Okay. <laughs> I was I was impressed. I didn't want to say anything, but yeah. <laughs> since you said it, since you said <laughs> it first, <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what I loved yeah. about this this loft that it wasn't this you know self conscious artistic thing. It was a, it was a functional space, right? I mean, working yeah yeah wor- working musicians um, are up late. That's just a fact of of life. You yeah, know, yeah. That, that, that's what comes from from doing a job where you're working when everyone else is hanging out. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, so to have a space where you can rehearse, not just jam, but rehearse, you know, work with people, you know, late into sort of three, four, five a.m., and then sleep during the day. Mm. That's an invaluable space for for musicians. And I'm not sure if something like that could exist anymore. It seems it seems like because of the so there was like a, a lack of regulation happening. In, yeah, in yeah. <laughs> and they, they had some reason about how they could do it because it was like a commercial zone or something like that. But I'm not right. sure. It, I don't think that yeah. would hold off today. Right. Yeah. Because it was zoned as a commercial district. So there was no noise ordinance. Hmm. Right. So if, if it was residential, yeah, <laughs> then, you know, rehearsing until, you know, the sun was rising would probably not go over, over well. But it might be today that those spaces still exist, but they're in an institution. Right. Like we used to right. rehearse you know, at two, three AM. But we, yeah. we had a we had a music we had a music school that we could go to. And and, and the key 
<laughs> Are you about to say what I'm thinking you're about to say? I don't know. I don't think so. Well, you said the key is to get in the building by midnight because they lock the doors at midnight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but if you're yes. in, you're, you're in. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we, we, we did cut it pretty close. We got there like just before midnight. Yeah. <laughs> and then we rehearsed for a few hours. Or, or the old the old classic trick of, of um, getting there before midnight and, and putting a little pebble in the door. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then, and then piecing out and coming back at like 2 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> But, that was the music annex building, right? The, the, yeah. That was like the, like everyone kind of knew that secret. And you know what? Sometimes you, you could just like safely assume that someone would do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the custodian's like, yeah, I don't get paid enough to care. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's no way. <laughs> but the, the key yeah. point of this, one of the central aspects is that none of these people, with I think the exception of Hall Overton, worked within the, the, the parameters of an institution. True. Right? Yeah. They they had essentially nowhere to go. And of course, if you had a house that was sort of a big house and far away from things, then you could also, you know, rehearse there late at night. But but an- another key element to all of this is, is that all of these people were broke. Yeah. So Right, like many many of them lived there for like a stretch of time here yeah. and there and stuff. And it was I think lived is uh, is a, is glorifying <laughs> it a bit. I think they crashed there, maybe they, they crashed, crashed, they were yeah. put up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like a few of them, I remember them saying had like a few changes of clothes, like in the file cabinet because yeah. it was zoned to be a commercial district. So, <laughs> so when the landlord came along, you know, just to make sure, dude, this exactly. honestly reminded so. me a lot of like um, Maxwell parties back at college. Yes, yes, we right? had these. We had parties that were a lot like this. Yeah, yeah. So it was the apartment complex, like right a few blocks. It was off campus, but just a few blocks from the music school. But yeah, there are parties, right? Everyone would show up around like 11 or midnight. <laughs> yep. Like the party wouldn't start until then. And they would go as long as people stayed there. And we would just sight read music and... Yeah, just sight read chamber music, hang out. It was just like such a like supportive... I don't, I don't want to say that in like a corny environment. Like everyone knew why they were there. It wasn't to one-up the other guy. But this was very much the community part of it where you all wanted to just you know, create something great. Yeah, those are so much fun. Those are so much fun. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Anthony Bourdain always used to talk about how, like his favorite part of, of his life as a chef, you know, before he was a writer and travel TV mm-hmm. guy, uh, was after after the shift ends to go to hang out with all the other chefs late at night and eat and drink and talk shop, you know, talk talk about yeah. talk about the day of service, you know, and that's what this was. I think that's a vital part for, for the, you know, there's certain professions like being a chef, being a musician, dancers there, there are certain things where where you are doing work when everyone else is relaxing yeah, yeah and that you need to have some sort of community after work for these kinds of jobs right the jazz loft plays this very functional space like the, the maxwell apartment i think you know we would we would come back after a concert you know after yeah. after playing in the pit or something for for yeah. the opera after we, the nutcracker after the nutcracker <laughs> baby but then the real fun the real fun of being a musician yeah. would begin afterwards right the, the fun of being exactly. a musician is to hang out with other musicians and and, and, exactly. and talk shop and talk music. Yeah, well, and I think that's that's natural for chefs and musicians and you said like ballet dancers because it's a very collaborative art form. Mm. Photography, less so, which I think made Eugene Smith like more and more unique yeah. and more and more special, right? That he, he was that kind of person when photography, when you think about it is, again, I'm not a, f- a photographer, so, you know, but my guess is it is a pretty solo art form, right? Yeah. So the fact that, yeah, it was, even though like the topic of this documentary, it, it's so music centric, but the fact that the person's place who was at, he, he was not a musician. I don't, I don't know, we probably should have said that. But <laughs> 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 
Eugene Smith was not a musician. He was a brilliant photographer, brilliant human, but he was not a musician, which I think made it perfect. Yeah. Right. He was the one audience member for all this. Even when they're interviewing some of these musicians nowadays, they said he was perfect because musicians famously kind of hate photographers, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Because they're always, okay, now hold your instrument that way. All right, good, good. Right now, now wink at me a tiny bit. <laughs> right? yeah. It's like hold that pose. It, yeah, exactly. All right, now pretend you're playing something hard. And something, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> so, but they said with Eugene Smith, they, I mean, in the greatest way possible, they would forget he was even there. I have a hard time believing this jazz loft scene could have happened again or anywhere else. Like it was kind of this, it could have happened differently and it could have been just as great, but different. But the way this scene was, was really just at the, you know, unique and precise combination of all these different factors that just, I don't think will ever happen again. And again, that's what kind of makes it so cool and interesting and why this documentary was so great. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, even little things like it had to be Eugene Smith, not just because he he loved music, but the way that he worked was, I think, fairly unique for a photographer. He seemed to be um, a night owl. Yeah, yeah. He seemed to be obsessive about developing his photograph, like we talked about before. He seemed to be obsessive about controlling every aspect of the development of the photograph in a way that maybe a lot of photographers are not. And he would he would go on these sort of obsessive binges of work, right? He would just sort of work and work and work for for a week or something, and then and then crash. He needed music while he was developing his photographs at three a.m. and the musicians needed a place to rehearse. So here we are, you know, right. this is, this is perfect. If he was another, per- if he was another kind of photographer who was like more traditional, he may have easily said, shut the fuck up. I'm trying to sleep. I need to go to my job. Another thing too, right. To add to your list right there, he was extremely obsessive about how his pictures would eventually be presented. Like he got in arguments mm. and fights all the time with the editor, with the editors of Time Magazine over like where on the page this picture would be printed, what the text under it would be about, what, yeah, <laughs> like on which page it was and things. Not just page one is more important than page two. No, like in what order would you see the pictures if you're going through page by page and things, right? He was obsessive about these things. I have a feeling a lot of photographers wouldn't be, right? Just, you know, all right, give you my check on the way out and I'll keep taking pictures for you. Yeah. And that's why he ended up at this loft. I think this this loft was the kind of place where geniuses kind of filtered to. Geniuses yeah. who could not sort of quite fit into their, their field. You know, I, he- I hesitate to use the word misfit, but maybe that's that's the right word. These people who couldn't quite function in a sort of institutional bureaucratic capacity, right? He he had mm-hmm. a great gig at was it time or life? I forget. Time or life. Same difference. <laughs> yeah. But he couldn't he couldn't quite fit in. So you know he 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 quit, you know, because because of the the problems with, with yeah. you know lack of control in the in the final product and, and he had a hard time making a living because he, he couldn't quite work well enough as part of a team to to sort of get the um, kind of salary that he's obviously capable of if he could just sort of Lose, like relinquish a little bit of control and just you know shut up a little bit he could obviously have <laughs> right. made a quite a good living but instead he ended up at this sort of dingy hole in <laughs> in this manhattan loft right and you know hall overton was was there and he had a gig teaching composition at juilliard but he had yeah. his own problems you know he was you know he was teaching composition at juilliard by by day but he was you know, chain smoking, hard drinking. He was doing the whole jazz thing on the side. And he also sort of filtered through this, through the institution into this loft, you know. And Thelonious yeah. Monk, who, who worked with Hall yeah. he had lost his cabaret card. So he couldn't work at the yeah. clubs anymore. And, and he, was, he was, you know, trying to make his comeback. 
you know, it was right. all these people who had essentially no business being at such a down and out place because of their mm. level of talent and genius and and, mm. and and success, but they had sort of filtered to this, to this, you know, place. So basically, if Implied to Listen was an apartment, it would be the jazz loft. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's exactly what this podcast is. It's a, it's a repository for underappreciated yeah. geniuses. Yeah, right. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you know, you know, sure. There's a podcasty element to the jazz loft. I mean, he, he just like turned the mics on and let things happen, which yeah. kind of like a podcast. This yeah. podcast, actually. <laughs> yeah. I really got the sense that I, the same kind of feeling that I get with Glenn Gould, where it's just like, oh man, yeah. this would have been so, in, like he would have been so interesting in the media age. Like yeah. you, you give Eugene Smith the internet, he would have right. done something totally insane. What would Eugene Smith's podcast be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. That right. would be off the hook. <laughs> yeah. Glenn Gould's a great example too, right? I mean, yeah. like think if Glenn Gould could ever have a computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, the things, the cool things he, he could have done. Yeah. Like if Eugene Smith were alive, he'd be like amongst the most famous people like on the internet yeah. and in the world, right? But again, I always kind of wonder, but maybe that's over romanticizing it. Maybe he would have never gotten into photography then, right? It's like yeah. <laughs> photography was something very different back then and had a lure that he was drawn to. And because I always thought the same thing, like what if, you know, the classic thing, like, oh yeah, if Beethoven were alive today, what would he be doing? I'm like, I don't think he'd be composing symphonies. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> he'd, probably be, he'd probably be coming up with the new, the new hot TikTok dance or whatever the yeah. kids are doing. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right. <laughs> Yeah. So, okay. I'm trying to think. Anything, anything else you want to touch on the Jazz Loft? Let me check my notes here. I think I've kind of hit all... I think I hit on... I, 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 like, I have one bullet point that says photography and music relationship. So. Nice. Nice, man. <laughs> you, are a, you are a scrupulous note taker. Yeah. That is. That's what we call doing the work. I think we hit it, though. Anyway, so building off of the Jazz Loft, it's funny, something that's always been on my mind and I've always been thinking about and been curious about is the regionality of music. This kind of comes from the Jazz Loft and particularly in our case, like the, the different classical music scenes in different cities in the US and Europe, around the world. Even if you just take the basic example of just different orchestras, right? Like the Boston Symphony has a very different sound than the New York Philharmonic does. And they also play in a very different concert hall. The city of Boston is very different than New York, and the artistic scene is different. And that, that's just in the United States. When you compare you know, the German orchestras within Germany, and then German orchestras, English, French, Italian orchestras, Russian orchestras, I think the variance is just so interesting, beautiful, and just kind of curious. And it's, it's a big topic to talk about, and there's so many ways you, you can go about this, just hearing the recordings, but also if you're playing in any of these orchestras, right? you have to if you're a trumpet player in Chicago, like Chris Martin was the principal trumpet player of the Chicago Symphony, but two years ago, he got principal of the New York Philharmonic and decided to take it. And yeah, he, he talks about ha having to readjust his sound when he joined that orchestra. You can argue whether that's a good or bad thing, but but anyway, yeah, there's yeah. so many avenues to kind of think about this. And um, I'm curious what your kind of initial high level thoughts are about, about this cool phenomenon I think goes on here. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's inevitable. Some selection is going to be happening, and if you sort of change the, the location, the variation is going to follow. The two main ways that I can think of that the city sort of affects the music is, is in the scene and, and the style, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's some interplay between those those two things. But I think the more sort of fine-grain thing is is the style, right? The way that people play, the way that things sound in that city. Can you give an example? One that comes to, to mind as a flute player is is the sound of the Parisian flute scene, right? Like the, sorry, the, mm. the, the Parisian flute style, right? Okay. And I say Parisian specifically as opposed to French because often people talk about the French school, but there's not really a French school. There's in Paris, there's, they play a certain way, and then in, in Marseille, they play they play another way. Right. And, and this is mirrored too in the languages uh, or yeah. the, the French language, right? There's a as I kind of joked, you know, there's two Frances, there's Paris, and then there's the, the rest of France. Yeah. And, like, I remember even in our French program at university, they taught us, like, Parisian French, or they said they did at least, right? So, yeah, that's mirrored just in the people and the complexity as well. Yeah. To give a little bit more detail, like, in Paris, in the conservatories there, it's very much refined and, and technically exacting, and it's more orchestral, for lack of a better word. In Marseille, it's more singing. It's more of a singing style. It's more warm and charming. The sound is just immediately different. Like you, you anyone, anyone listening will be able to, to tell. Okay. And I think that comes that comes largely from individuals, right? I think people set up shop in a city because yeah. How, however they do, like people end up somewhere. And I think if they're a large enough personality, they they create obviously students, but also people like people going to them to be near them and learn from them and imitate them. So the you know I think individuals create. The, the kind of style of playing in a, in, a, in a certain city, right? Sure, yeah, and yeah. And that scales out to the way that the Berlin Philharmonic, you know, they, they, they tend to, to get musicians who are very young into their mm. orchestra, and then they train them in the, in the sort of way of playing in the Berlin Philharmonic. So it creates a right. sort of Berlin, Berlin style, you know? Yeah, it's very much, if I can draw, sorry to interrupt, yeah, no, yeah. If, I can, if I can just draw an analogy, and this is mirrored, or maybe they copied it. So it's the same philosophy they have for FC Barcelona, the soccer club. Oh, really? Right? Yeah. So if you notice, yeah, so the Barcelona, I'm going to get the terminology wrong, but it's the, the, like, the youth team, like the Barcelona youth team. That's where um, Leo Messi, you know, played for. And like all, all the great Spanish players that play for Barcelona all grew up playing for like the Barcelona youth club. Oh. And they learned how to play the unique style that is Barcelona soccer. And it's also a very economic way too, because um, generally speaking, especially for you know the top tier leagues, they don't spend a whole lot of money acquiring world class talent. No, they develop it themselves. Yeah. Right? So that's why it's a, people play for Barcelona, but then they they also just stay there. They don't ever leave because a why would they when they're you know winning so much? But b the style they learn nece- wouldn't necessarily fit well in the English soccer league or the German league or anything. Yeah. Or even even Madrid, right? So. Right. 
that's a great analogy. So I think in the fine grain way that there's there's that influence of, of sort of individuals on the style of the people doing the specific thing. And then there's a there's a larger sort of scene element to cities, right? And that one yeah. is harder to explain. That one, yeah. you know, it, with the style, there's like a almost like a one to one ratio, right? There was, right. in the case of the the Marseille flute school, Ron Paul's father was a teacher there, and he played a certain way, and he passed that on to Ron Paul, and then Ron Paul to his students, and 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 they created the style, right? That's very traceable, right? Um, and then yeah, but the scene, yeah. the scene, it's like this larger huh. thing, and it's, that's just all. It seems like a bunch of molecules sort of bumping into each other, and then something like the jazz loft happens, and yeah, it's right, like, right. and you can only, <laughs> and you can only, and you can only analyze that ex post facto, right? You can't. Right. Right. So, right, right. so that's that's the one that's like really interesting okay. to me. I don't so, know if you want to riff on that. Yeah. So I I have a way to think about it that might help. I think there's one exception, but usually cities have an anchor artistic organization in the performing arts. So forget mm. like art galleries and stuff. Um, well, don't forget them. No, they're great. But, <laughs> but for this conversation, so for example, Los Angeles, it's the LA Philharmonic, right? LA Opera, it, it's good. It's great. Um, but they don't have the spotlight. You know, I'm sorry. I think Paso Domingo is head. He's like artistic director of the LA Used Opera. To be. I think he got me too. Man, LA and the Me Too movement was not. <laughs> no, LA <laughs> did not come out looking pretty. <laughs> um, yeah, but like, and then of course, you know, I'll be cynical here. I think the great embarrassment to LA is they don't have a ballet company. <laughs> like the second biggest city in the United States, and arguably one of, if not the artistic capital of the United States, is LA. For better or worse, they don't even have a professional ballet company. There's like the LA Ballet, but it's like a regional, like part-time sort of thing. It's not like a real ballet company where you have some cities that are you would call second tier cities have phenomenal ballet companies like the portland ballet is actually talk to any ballet dancer they're doing really cool innovative stuff at the portland ballet and then of course you have the big ballet companies but but anyway so the classical scene in la is anchored by the la phil if you talk to anyone living in new york from like the late 60s like the 70s through the 90s essentially but especially let's say the 70s and 80s the New York City Ballet was like the most relevant ballet company on the planet with Balanchine and Jerry Robbins and stuff. I mean, it was it was the ballet company in the world to watch. Bernstein had already kind of stepped aside from the New York Phil and stuff. And the, the Met Opera is always the, the Met Opera. But the New York City Ballet was like, George Balanchine is like an artist on the level of, I'll even say it, like Tolstoy and Bach. What we now call ballet was George Balanchine's invention. <laughs> ballet was very different before him. The Nutcracker was very, very different. The music's still the same, but the the production, completely different. What we think of as the Nutcracker now, the stage production with the rising tree and the fireplace and the Nutcracker, that's all George Balanchine. <laughs> So I think there's always these kind of anchor organizations. The exception I do think is London, um, both because a they have like five full-time professional orchestras. So yeah, they have the London Symphony Orchestra, the London Philharmonic, the Philharmonia Orchestra, the Royal Philharmonic, and the BBC Symphony. Yeah, <laughs> and then they also have the Royal Ballet and the Royal Opera. <laughs> so. 
and the so, Academy of Saint Martin in the fields, and that yeah, and all the uh, chamber stuff. Yeah, yeah so yeah. they have they have a lot, but uh, but yeah, so I think um, a good framework to start to address this with is what kind of city in the performing arts, classical performing arts, you know, spectrum. Where does your city sit? Is it a, a symphony orchestra? Is it a ballet company? Is it a chamber orchestra? Yeah. Is it who's selling out every night? Right. Like yeah. The popping up of scenes still seems almost inexplicable to me. Hmm. Um, to to hmm. give another example from uh, yeah. obviously so you know there's a jazz loft there, there yeah. are a number of scenes in New York but one that's in- interesting is the way that the way that we play baroque music in the in the modern era um, really came out of yeah. Amsterdam in the 70s, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. it was and it's just this is another thing where we can sort of analyze it in post. But there's a harpsichordist there. His name is Gustav Leonhardt, and okay, and he was he was one of the great founders of the of the sort of historically informed performance movement the and hip movement the hip, they call it right the yeah, hip movement yeah, yeah. And, which is and a great then, irony <laughs> yeah hip not so hip yeah but, you know he um, brought on these these three guys Bartold Koiken, Wieland Koiken, and 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 Sigiswald Koiken. They, they were these three brothers who played flute violin and cello and and they started playing a lot of Baroque music there in Amsterdam, and it just created this, the scene that sort of you know burst forth and moved on to Europe and and then eventually America. Ton Koopman, the organist, started the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra back then. Bartold Koiken, he he transplanted actually to to partly to Indianapolis, mm-hmm. you know, where you now reside, <laughs> where I now live. Yeah, and yeah. the Indianapolis Baroque Orchestra is wonderful, and there's like an interesting Baroque scene here. There's you know one of the longest running, I think the longest running early music festival in America is in Indianapolis. Why? Yeah, God yeah, knows. Right, why. right. I mean, heck, where we went to school in Southern Indiana. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, who would have thought a music school would end up there? Right? Yeah, who would think that like the school, like one of the top schools for churning out the next generation of orchestral musicians, is in the middle of nowhere, yeah. Southern Indiana. It's like a weird spinoff of like the Hungarian school of, yeah. of teaching too, with Jonas Starker, the great Hungarian cellist that taught there for a while, and yeah yeah it's like what <laughs> I think it was because what was his first name uh wells the the president back then back in the herman b wells herman yeah, b yeah, wells that's right I almost said h g wells but that's an author um so h mm-hmm. b wells wasn't there something where he after the war there were a bunch of European professors who were out of out of a gig because of why? 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 why was, yeah. What happened in Europe in the forties? That would cause you know all these Jewish you know violin professors not have work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and then Wells just brought brought them brought them to to Indiana. It's not like the most exciting answer, right? It's just like yeah, like they recruited a few European professors and a few more came, then more came, and then you know students came. The cycle just feeds itself. So then I have a question for you. I probably already know the answer, so I'll ask it twice. <laughs> but the first time I'm going to ask it is, we've never asked this question on the podcast, but what's your favorite orchestra? What's a special orchestra for you? Like an orchestra, because like, 
I feel the same way with like composers. Like, yeah. what's your favorite composer? It's not really a fair question, but who's a composer who's like has a special place in you? Um, which orchestra has a special place in your heart, Schreeder? I would it's like so many people say the Berlin Philharmonic. Yeah, I, I knew you were going to say that, so I'm going to ask it again. What's your second orchestra? That, yeah. that well, uh, if I may, if I may amend my answer slightly, sure. yeah, uh, yeah. I will say specifically the, the, yeah. the Berlin. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I've never said that. I'm going to use that again sometime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I think it's, like, you should put that in your repertoire. I, I will specifically say I think the Berlin Philharmonic in the '90s under the direction of Claudio Bato. Okay. Okay. More so than than in the modern era. Yeah, even more so than the Carrion era, because I know a lot, yeah. a lot of people would say the glory days of the Berlin Philharmonic were under Herbert von Karajan through the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And 60s, I guess, too. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> but for me, I think the, the orchestra that I grew up listening to the most were, were, those, were those recordings of Claudio Bato with the Berlin Philharmonic, so that's gotcha. special to me. That's not a very interesting answer. The, the orchestra that I, that I probably go to very often is... After Berlin is probably the London Symphony. Oh, nice! Yeah, okay. Which I guess now is is being head by Simon Rattle, who used to be at <laughs> yeah. Berlin. So, yeah, yeah. There's you're not you're not alone in, in your yeah. thinking. Yeah. So yeah. Explain. But also, actually, Claudio Bato used to conduct the London Symphony for a while as well. So there's some great some great recordings he, he did there. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So ex- explain if you don't mind. I I think the the orchestra is just very precise. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's you know their, their recordings their recordings have this sort of X-ray quality that I really admire. Once you get sort of continental, you know, like stateside. You mean like no, no, they on the oh, oh, side, the, yeah. oh, the yeah. You mean the EU side? The EU side, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the the especially sort of say in Berlin, the the mm-hmm. you get this sort of lush sort of wall of sound. Yeah, um, yeah. especially from the strings, and it's it's sometimes a bit opaque. I'm generalizing with with broad strokes but the the london symphony has always been this orchestra that the way that the sound is just something that really w- works for my brain right the strings are lush the the winds are precise but it's all maybe transparent is the right word to use okay it's just i can it seems like when i listen like there's a recording of them with i think about playing stravinsky ballets and more than any other recording that i love that recording because i can like see the score in my head it's just so on the money and it's just like it's it's like one of those like shotgun homes you know it's just i can see what everyone's doing all the way back That recording is it of all the Stravinsky ballets, or is there one in particular? That I, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely um, Petrushka and Firebird, okay. but I'm not sure if Apollo is there or um, Rat of Spring. But I think okay. it might be. You remember the opening line for the first episode of this podcast? <laughs> no. Tune in next week for why Petrushka is better than the Rat of Spring. <laughs> That's what you said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I forgot about that. Because we're ta- talking about applause, and you said audience reactions can like over cement a piece. Man, past past three, they really knew what he was talking about. I completely <laughs> agree with him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, it's funny you say like they're so precise because the LSO, the London Symphony Orchestra, I mean, they're just, they're one of the great film orchestras too, right? Because uh, hmm, yeah. they've recorded so many, most film soundtracks are either recorded in LA or in London, right? John Williams really loved the sound of the London Symphony Orchestra. So most of his scores, I don't think all, but most of them were with the LSO at Abbey Road Studios in, in London. So it's funny that, that you say they're sense. precise because yeah. yeah, you know, when you're, Performance like a click track, you know, for like a film scene, you know, the game is precision. Yeah. It, it's very film oriented. And again, more than LA, LA has a bigger film industry, maybe, but the LA Phil rarely plays for film scores, right? It's, it's, it's like session studio. musicians. Yeah. yeah, they use the studio, the studio session musicians. And there's those in London as well. But the London Symphony Orchestra itself has played like so many film scores, like Rares of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, um, Harry Potter. So it also makes sense that they can be so flexible and play so many different styles like really well and that's i think part of london musically right there's not that many if yeah there's not that many great british composers let's just say it right holst i guess um who's eh. the uh, yeah algar sometimes algar yeah yeah um Purcell. but you had to go way back yeah but because of that it's not like when you play beethoven with the vienna philharmonic there's like a very agreed upon way you have to play it right yeah but when you're playing beethoven with the london symphony i mean there's so many ways you you can do it. they don't have that i don't want to say baggage but yeah it's very um there's such a flexible orchestra i always thought the same way about um the royal concertgebouw in amsterdam hmm. yeah again because there's not like that many dutch composers but because of that they kind of like freeze them up they're not like tied down by that tradition which i think is really cool yeah i, I think that applies to the the culture of music in the city generally right hmm. the pianist Mitsuko Uchida, who yeah. like, maybe lives there. Yep. I think she she has said somewhere that the reason London is so is exactly what you said. London is so interesting is because they're not they're not tied down to to the sort of tradition in any way. I mean, Paris is maybe the biggest culprit for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, really you, you <laughs> tradition cannot... in Paris. I didn't know that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, because you studied there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would also say for that reason, I think like the the Canadian orchestras um, and, and yeah. like Canadian musicians tend to be tend, tend well, to be speaking interesting. Of... Yeah. Speaking of um, performing arts organizations that anchor the city, in Toronto, it's the Canadian National Ballet that's in Toronto that really anchors that city, which I think is really cool. They've it's like gorgeous performing arts center and stuff, but any ballet dancer will tell you that um, it's either called like the Royal Canadian Ballet Company or something like that in Toronto. It's just phenomenal. But again, right, it's not like the ballet company in the, the Paris Opera Ballet Company is named the main company in Paris. Again, they have a way of doing all the French ballets, but in Canada, they're kind of freed up. Heck, in, in San Francisco, the ballet is wonderful here. They're totally world-class. And they do some really cool original productions that would not fly in Moscow. <laughs> I remember Glenn Gould saying in some interview about about the reason why he, he chose to to stay in Toronto as opposed to sort of moving to New York or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But once he, once he, you know, became big. He was a diehard Maple Leafs fan. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's <laughs> what would, it is. He was a um, hockey th fan. <laughs> th there's some sense in which he was like a, a homebody and a recluse, but I, I think there's, there's a real inte intellectual or aesthetic reason for staying away mm. from it. Right. I think he, yeah. he really made the case for not, you know, we were talking about, scenes and there's actually a merit of being sort of away from a scene yeah yeah in that if you yeah. if he moved to new york he would be he would be terribly into you can't help but be influenced by what everyone is doing there in terms of what kind of music they're into what they're what they're playing what's hip and you know how they're doing it and etc cetera, etc cetera. 
and Glenn Gould really placed a premium on being able to, especially back then, Toronto was was not cultured. It, you know, it was it was industrial. Yeah, yeah, it was a very town. working class town. Yeah. yeah, now it's more more of yeah. uh, an artsy town. It's getting to be more that way. But back then, you know, yeah, it's, Montreal was like the art capital. Of Canada, exactly, right? Montreal yeah. was ex- exactly. It was you know, yeah. it was a more artistic place. And so Glenn Gould really placed a, a premium on being able to be away from it all in Toronto, and be sort of developing his work in isolation and then taking it to New York, right? Yeah. And and I think that's that shocked people in a way more because he was really bringing something that that just was not happening in New York because he wasn't part of the scene. Yeah, I mean, so. for the same reason why um, George Lucas set up Lucasfilm in the San Francisco area, he wanted to be he wanted to be away from the studio system of L.A. And same with Pixar, you know, when they were hmm. set up here, right? They wanted to be away from Disney and Warner Brothers and Universal and, and that whole world. Which I yeah. kind of respect that. I mean, if you know what you're doing, yeah, go for it. If you don't know what you're doing, yes. uh, probably not the best strategy. 